Welcome. You are listening to Poverty in Focus. This Center for Poverty Research podcast series brings together experts in their fields to discuss new poverty research and public policy. I'm Amanda Geyer, an Associate Professor of Human Development and Family Studies at UC Davis and a faculty affiliate of the Center for Poverty Research. Today, it is my pleasure to speak with Stephanie Jones. She is the Marie and Max Carvin Associate Professor in Human Development and Urban Education Advancement at Harvard University's School of Education. Stephanie's research focuses on the long-term impacts of poverty and violence on social and emotional development. She is a principal investigator of a multi-year experimental evaluation of the school-based 4Rs program, which is designed to integrate social and emotional learning with literacy development. Stephanie, thank you for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here. Um, It's so great to have you here, and while I also want to learn about the 4Rs program, Um, I'd love to first hear more about the Chicago School Readiness Project that we've been discussing recently as the kids are now moving into the eighth grade. So why don't we start with that? So um, the Chicago School Readiness Project is an approach to intervention in early childhood that addresses a pretty well-documented problem among high-risk, low-income children, which is that they arrive at pre-K or preschool with um, challenges in behavior. The intervention itself is providing teachers with training and effective behavior management in the classroom that is complemented by in vivo, meaning in classroom support from licensed social workers who really, who are there to not necessarily provide direct services to kids around behavior, but to support teachers in enacting the kinds of strategies they learn in the professional development in the classroom when behavior becomes a challenge. So the intervention wasn't a curriculum that was delivered to directly to kids. It was really about supporting the adults as a pathway to supporting kids and focused on a particular issue in early childhood classrooms that is often not a focus, which is kids' challenging behavior. We developed the intervention. It was implemented in a set of Head Start centers in Chicago, in some of the highest risk neighborhoods in Chicago. And we did a big randomized evaluation of it where Head Start sites were randomized to have access to the intervention and other sites randomized to just a business as usual control condition. And we collected lots of data from teachers and parents and kids in those classrooms. And we followed kids from the beginning of the year through the course of the year into the spring. Since this, since we did this project, we have now followed those kids at kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fifth grade. And now you and I are planning to follow them um, into eighth and tenth grade. And basically what we found over the course of the year was that classrooms were uh, better managed. Behavior was better managed in classrooms. Teachers were more effective at deploying the strategies to manage kids' behavior. And as a result, they had higher quality relationships with the kids in their classrooms. The kids' behavior as reported by teachers and as observed by outsiders was significantly better in the intervention classrooms than it was in the other classrooms. And in addition, the children showed improvements in their basic self-regulation and in their pre-academic skills, so their early math skills and their early language and literacy skills. And this is something we think is happening because behavioral challenges in the classroom are reduced 
kids have more opportunity to access the learning environment and teachers have more opportunity to deliver instruction around language and literacy and maybe early math. So as a main mechanism, reducing stress on the part of the teachers to become more available to the children in the classrooms? We haven't yet documented the intervention effects on characteristics of teacher stress as reported by teachers or even burnout, but there is someone working on that. Mm -hmm. But we do think that it is, it's a device that uh, reduces overall stress in the classroom environment that is born of kids coming in with particularly challenging behavior. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the interesting things about the story of this intervention is that not unlike many early childhood interventions in pre-K that last one year, we saw effects in the ways we expected within the intervention year. And then the kids left that environment and they went on to kindergarten, to public elementary schools. And when we followed them, the effects that we had documented at the end of the Head Start year had basically faded away. So, and this is something that we see reported over and over and over again in early childhood intervention work, which is that we see effects in the ways we would expect them after that year, and then they fade out, and we don't see them sustained as children move into new environments. environments and that was consistent with this project as well. It makes me think about how early childhood is viewed as this time in development of um, a great deal of changes that occur in brain development. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have adolescence, which in the last um, 20 years has gotten similar focus as another period in development where we, again, are seeing changes and shifts in the brain. So as these kids are entering adolescence um, or traveling through adolescence into adulthood, um, might we see some reorganization of their behavior that's related to you know, the reemergence of brain uh, changes, so to speak. I think that's so super interesting. And part of the reason I think that's interesting is because some of the focus with the Chicago School Readiness Project, its focus on behavior specifically, comes out of an emerging body of research that links uh, exposure to stress and strain, sometimes described as toxic stress, in the environment. And... Uh, emerging brain architecture as the prefrontal cortex expands during those early childhood years, mm-hmm. primarily during between the ages of three, four, and five, which mm-hmm. has been pretty well documented. And the, the theory is that the reason uh, in high-stress, low-income environments, you see kids struggling with behavior, that one reason is because of this stress-brain architecture relationship, and that that kids are not coming in with the kinds of basic behavioral regulation skills that are located in the prefrontal cortex and therefore struggle with behavior. And so I think what CSRP was able to do was push against some of that challenge by giving teachers tools to support kids to regulate their own Mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the intervention year, we saw some improvements in behavior. We didn't then as kids went into a new context, document continued effects of the intervention on kids' academic outcomes as they went Mm -hmm. along. Mm -hmm. But as you suggest, when they hit that moment in adolescence where the prefrontal cortex undergoes another expansion, 
the kids who are exposed to the CSRP intervention in early childhood may be primed mm -hmm. to move through that particular period more effectively than others. I mean, it's a hypothesis. Right. I'm not right. sure. Right. And certainly one of the ideas behind our knowledge about these effects is that during periods of change, the system is more open to the influence of outside forces. Right, and of so, intervention. Of intervention. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's not, even if it's not directly being applied, that movement and change might allow for past environmental supports to sort of reemerge. Or, or there might be that priming kind of effect where they're better able to seek support from adults as adolescents because they've had some good uh, mm -hmm. interchanges with adults in early childhood as well. Mm -hmm. And so we might see some of those effects working in that direction as well. So Totally. Very interesting. So how does that project differ, for example, from the 4Rs program that you've also been working on? The 4Rs is not dissimilar. Uh, it comes out of uh, a parallel focus and a similar field of study, um, but is really targeted to kids in elementary, kids in elementary school. And it is, uh, comes out of uh, this world of social-emotional learning, which is about building basic social-emotional and behavioral skills in school-age children in a way that is integrated with regular classroom instruction. So the story is really very similar, which is that kids who struggle with behavior in the classroom environment tend to do less well in school. They have they show greater challenges accessing the learning environment. Teachers who struggle with kids in their classrooms who have challenges with behavior have a harder time delivering instruction to the rest of the kids. And so it is this kind of brew that is a real barrier to accessing the learning environment for everybody. And there have been a number of approaches to, to supporting kids' behavior in classroom environments. And one comes out of the world of social and emotional learning and is really about building kids' social interactional skills to offset um, basic social problems that distract kids and mm -hmm. get them in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so the, you could imagine um, a sequence of interventions that could start with something like the Chicago School Readiness Project that are then followed with interventions in elementary school that continue to support kids' positive behavior, but the approach is slightly different and it's one that's more like 4Rs. So 4Rs is a social-emotional learning conflict resolution program that was designed to be integrated with a balanced literacy curriculum hmm. so that it could be implemented in the school day in a way that was um, not viewed as an outside added program, that it would be implemented into something that was already happening as part of the regular school day, which is the literacy block. The program itself includes lessons in conflict resolution and social problem solving, and they are tied to high quality children's literature, so mm -hmm. teachers read the book, there is a classroom discussion about the book, and then for each unit there are a number of applied lessons that are tied to the book that are designed to build kids' skills in these areas. Similar to the Chicago School Readiness Project, we essentially came in and designed a big evaluation study around this program. Mm -hmm. The study was somewhat larger than the Chicago School Readiness Project in that we implemented the intervention 
when children were in third grade and when they were in fourth grade and when they were in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. And then we followed them through those periods and then after that into high school. And our findings are um, interesting. I mean, we saw after the first year of intervention when children were at the end of third grade, we saw positive effects on their um, on their social cognitions about positive interactions with other kids, their social cognitions about aggression. So they tended to uh, more accurately understand the intention of others in problem-solving situations that were unclear. They also were less aggressive. That was the, at the end of third grade. At the end of fourth grade, those effects were stronger, meaning there were bigger differences between the control group and the intervention group. Mm-hmm. But we also saw new effects in other areas, increased social competence, uh, increased uh, attention skills. So with increased exposure to the program over time, Mm -hmm. we saw bigger and more effects. What's interesting about uh, this study is that when kids moved into fifth grade and were at the point of transition to middle school, which has been documented by researchers as a time when Uh, things typically go bad. (laughs) The transition to middle school has been defined as a time that is a real struggle for kids who are entering into adolescence. Mm -hmm. Uh, The effects we had documented through the end of fourth grade essentially disappeared by the end of fifth Mm. grade. So it appeared that there was something about the impending transition to middle school that was disorganizing kids, and we were not seeing the same difference as a result of the 4 Rs program between the control and the intervention kids. There, I have a whole bunch of students who have been working on this problem and trying to understand not only something about the developmental context for the kids that may help us unpack those that pattern of findings over time, but also something about the ecological context of the schools that may account for why some of those effects change. And what we're seeing is that not atypical in public schools, um, particularly uh, urban, low-income public schools, that there is a tremendous amount of teacher turnover. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the story is that we have an intervention that is being implemented by teachers. Teachers are trained to do it. They get professional coaching to do it. And it appears that there is a differential between the intervention schools and the control schools in teacher turnover. And this, the way it works is that teachers appear to be leaving more, turning over more, in the intervention schools. Oh, interesting. That's unexpected. It is totally unexpected. And it could be. I mean, there are a bunch of explanations for this. It could be that teachers have a new body of skills, and they can take these skills to other positions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It could be that there are real... Um, system level opportunity costs to doing this kind of work to trying something new in the classroom and Mm -hmm. it is hard work and it can provide for teachers an increase in stress in the short run which may make them under you know already stressful conditions decide that this is not what they right. want to a do. A new set of demands on their time. and energy. A new set of demands yeah. on their time. Mm-hmm. So the consequence for kids of course is that the the intervention condition for them essentially becomes what we really don't want it to be, which is mm-hmm. that, you know, semi-unpredictable uh, environment over time in that they may have had experience with four hours as a third grader and then uh, 
not had it as a fourth grader because a new teacher came into the system and was less well trained and uh-huh. new to all of it. Uh-huh. And then in fifth grade had a teacher who had been doing it for three years and they were not ready to do it with the teacher because their skills were not in alignment with what the teacher is trying to do. So, and you can imagine all kinds of patterns like that. So that's a second kind of unpacking of those findings. And then the third is the reality of schools is that they have um, a lot to do. Teachers are required to do a great deal of stuff in that very short actual period of time the kids are in the classroom. And it's, a fixed system and it's very hard to add something in and so mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. despite our intentions to implement and evaluate a program that's really integrated into the school day it still didn't come off that way it was still something that teachers had to find time mm-hmm. to do in their day so as a consequence there's tremendous variation in implementation okay and okay. Uh, it could be that as kids are moving up in their academic trajectories the pressures were increased on Mm. teachers to Mm -hmm. get them ready to go off to middle school to um, in New York City where we did this study uh, kids when they're going off to middle school they actually go through an application process so you have to and their middle school choice is based partly on how well they do on certain kinds of tests and how well they do in elementary school so the pressure is amping up and there may be just less room for something Mm -hmm. like this. Thanks so much for sharing that. It's so interesting, and it's particularly interesting to me as somebody who conducts developmental neuroscience research um, in that I follow some of the literature on um, the intersect of neuroscience and education. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I, I find your work um, particularly interesting in that context is that you're focusing quite a bit on the social and emotional realm of development and how that um, can be better supported, where in contrast, some of the work in neuroscience uh, education areas has focused more on, on, you know, what are those cognitive skills? What, you know, how do we get kids to read better, be more proficient readers or learn math and things like that? And Mm -hmm. um, I think it'll be really interesting to try to um, weave in some of these social emotional indicators into that body of of research, and some people have started mm-hmm. um, doing so in terms of looking at things processes like mentalizing, so trying to understand the thoughts of other people, um, how people are feeling, um, you know that those sorts of social cognition types of skills um, so there there is work in neuroscience that's finding differences in the brain related to those processes Mm -hmm. that I think, um, you know, have a lot to um, say in terms of the the things you're doing in the classrooms, which are really, really interesting. I totally agree. And I think one thing that came becomes really clear when you start to talk across disciplines about this area in particular is that we all talk about all of it different ways. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a movement in the... I would say a little bit in the policy world, a lot in the practice world, and certainly emerging and growing in the academic world around non-cognitive skills. And you hear about it in early childhood, and you hear about it in elementary school, and you hear about it in high school, and it gets defined in lots of different ways. And the way our group has tried to define this body of skills, which really, if you Google non-cognitive skills, (laughs) you will come up with a million different things. 
we've tried hard to get very clear about mm-hmm. exactly what we mean in this space. So, so you said something really interesting. You said mentalizing, right? Which mm-hmm. is, which if I were to interpret that in, ter- in my terms, mm-hmm. it would be something like um, metacognition. Right. And it would be also something like uh, the applied version of metacognition is thinking about your thinking, talking about your thinking, and focusing your attention on certain kinds of things. So, so what's so exciting about the non-cognitive space, however clunky and inaccurate that term is, um, is that it seems like we're beginning to capture phenomena that really represent the link between mm-hmm. what neuroscientists are documenting and kids' real-world mm-hmm. behaviors. Mm-hmm. So their academic behaviors and their behavior behaviors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just super, super exciting to actually have something that serves as the bridge between those two That's fields. That's right, yeah. And, and in, the, in the developmental space, also thinking about the distinctions that occur as kids develop and change over time in terms of there's there's likely an essence to what those mm-hmm. non-cognitive skills are across the lifespan, but they need to, to change with age and with the capabilities of, um, of a child, of an adolescent, of an adult. And the demands of the context. And the demands of the context, exactly. So it's exactly. like age-specific manifestations of the same of the same underlying same underlying phenomenon, phenomenon. Yeah. yeah which takes us oddly that you bring this up you've actually i think a couple of things that you've said have brings us back to our joint training as doctoral students together back in the day <laughs> that's true <laughs> in child development and social policy where that's we were right. talking we spent a lot of time talking about the intersection between developmental theory which is a lot of what we've just been talking about and uh, direct application to policy and practice That's in the right. world. Exactly, exactly. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today. It's been a real pleasure to have you visiting UC Davis, and I'm so excited to hear your talk. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun to be here. I'm Ann Stevens, the director of the Center for Poverty Research at UC Davis, and I want to thank you for listening. The center is one of three federally designated poverty research centers in the United States. Our mission is to facilitate nonpartisan academic research on domestic poverty, to disseminate this research, and to train the next generation of poverty scholars. Core funding comes from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. For more information about the center, visit us online at poverty.ucdavis.edu.